1: is back and bet online remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season you'll find the latest odds matchup info player news and game trends and as your continued source for all sports wagering info bet online features live betting free contest live scores and giveaways all season long always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events like mlb mma tennis boxing and even golf head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100 percent welcome bonus with your first deposit make sure to use promo code believe b-l-e-a-v to receive your rewards bet online where the game starts all right folks uh, welcome to the show this is jeremy evans your host of the believe in sports law podcast where we talk about entertainment media and sports topics and we have a very special guest with us today. This is episode 40 of season four. We have Jonathan Handel, who is a uh, writer, a journalist, a uh, a lover of poems, an entertainment and tech attorney at Troy Gold. Um, he also now uh, contributes to Puck, but formerly with The Hollywood Reporter, which is uh, probably the biggest publication in terms of Hollywood and everything that goes on there with regard to uh, to business dealings and everything else in the industry. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School in 1990, and he's uh, been an adjunct professor at uh, UCLA, USC, and Southwestern Law Schools. He's a terrific individual, a wonderful human being, and I was chatting with him and glad that he's with us today. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at J Handel. That's j h a n d l. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. So absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for that kind introduction. Well, awesome and appreciate you taking the time. So I guess, you know, we were having a little quick conversation before we got on today and I would love for you to start with um, the poem that you shared with me. And it's just, it's so beautiful and I'd love to, uh, I'd love for the, for the listeners to hear that one.
0: Sure, absolutely. So this is a um, a poem that popped into my head, really wrote itself as I was driving to dinner the other day. And uh, the poem is called Yellow Roadster. And it goes like this. I leave the house like a bat out of hell, fly down roads that I know so well. My SLK hugs every curve as I zip along with style and verve. I'm en route to sushi. So if you ask me, I'd rather be driving than swim in the sea.
1: I love it. It's so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Um, man, that's really good. That's really good. Uh, I think my only claim to fame on poems, Jonathan, is I think I wrote one when I was in fourth grade about bears. So it might be <laughs> it, it might be still around here somewhere, but uh, that's awesome. And I, I forgot to mention, not only is Jonathan a, a wonderful poet, uh, but he also uh, serves as special counsel to SAG-AFTRA, which is the big. Uh, obviously union in Hollywood. Um, he also serves as executive at WIO. Uh, it's an entertainment software company and you can regularly see him, uh, and, and, and read articles and columns from him in the New York times, BBC, Reuters, NBC, CNN, ABC, and CBS. So Jonathan, you know, we've been friends for a few years now. I've always loved reading your pieces. You always, you know, give a wonderful insight with your legal background into, Hollywood and politics and everything else. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you got your start at the Hollywood Reporter and how you were able to kind of use your legal skills uh, to get into sort of um, uh, the journalism side. Sure, and and one correction: I
0: actually uh, sag After was a client of mine for about two years, and with a and a title went along with that special outside special counsel, but they they are no longer a client. The uh, relationship has uh ended and um uh and in fact I represent uh, producers in their dealings with SAG-AFTRA and other guilds. Um but uh really only producers who are looking to to deal amicably with the uh, the unions and so that it's a situation that's a you know a win-win. And uh and and SAG is aware of that, of course. And uh I've I've interacted with the union in many different contexts as a journalist, as a, uh, as a lawyer for the union, as a lawyer now for producers, uh, as an advocate for members. It's, uh, you know, I've had a very interesting set of relationships with the union and, uh, uh, and likewise, my first entertainment law job, my third law job, I guess was, uh, I was an associate counsel at the writer's guild many years ago, about 30 years ago now. um, to, to give you a sense of my backstory uh, and leading up to the journalism, um, I was a math and science kid and uh, and computer kid in high school and did applied math uh, and computer science at Harvard as an undergrad, uh, was involved in gay activism and gay rights at school, and then when I graduated, uh, was a gay activist in uh, in Cambridge and uh, was asked to write a law, write a civil rights law for the city of Cambridge uh, even though I'd never even read a law at the time. And that's a whole story in and of itself, but that's what led me to pivot and go to law school. And um, I, I was very involved, deeply involved in politics to the point where uh, when I voted in presidential elections for, you know, president, vice president, uh, governor, senator, congressman, everything on down, every single person that I voted for was someone I'd met. And most of them were people who'd asked for my endorsement. So You know, I was on this career track and people were wanting me to run for city council and there'll be a senator one day and all this kind of stuff. But I, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, including the weather uh, in the Northeast, you know, really frigid winters and humid summers, uh, I decided on a different pathway and um, moved to L.A. uh, after law school, uh, after doing a a year um, clerkship for a federal court of appeals judge. So I practiced um, appellate law uh, and some entertainment litigation for a couple of years. Then moved over to the Writers Guild. Got you know got bitten by the entertainment bug, and then to a transactional firm. And I've been doing transactional you know entertainment law contracts and negotiations for uh, you know for about three decades now. And in 2007, the law firm that I'm non-exclusive with, uh, Troy Gould, as you mentioned. Uh, hired a publicist uh, to get us in the media, get more business. And she comes to me mid-year and positions me as an expert on uh, guild matters as the Writers Guild is in negotiations that were going poorly with the studios, the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And um I wasn't actually an expert at the time. I had been at the Writers Guild, but that was for a year, 15 years prior. and. I very quickly became one because she set up a lunch for me with Variety's labor reporter. And she was she was like the uh, Dave McNary was his name, uh, now deceased, actually. Uh, and the publicist, uh, she was like the cat that caught the canary or, or the cat that caught the McNary, as the case may be, because it was a great get for a small law firm. But I was like, oh, hell, this is going to go you know, really badly because this guy's been covering this stuff for ages and I'm not an expert, but. I quickly became one, you know, refamiliarized myself with these long contracts and everything. And it went, the lunch went really well and McNary starts calling me four times a day and asking me questions and starts quoting me in variety, uh, which was, you know, a little bit startling. And uh, that led, uh, I reached out to the LA Times. They started quoting me and, you know, by uh, the, the publicist also urged me to blog and I started blogging. And then the HuffPost asked me to blog on their platform And then the strike happens and the whole thing blows up. Um, Thousands, tens of thousands of people really are reading my, my blogging. Um, Sometimes I'm doing eight interviews a day for, you know, the New York times and uh, CNBC and Reuters and the AP and, you know, on and on NPR, uh, BBC, Canadian broadcasting. Uh, It was a very exciting time. And, I became, you know, known as, uh, as an expert on guild matters. And so the strike eventually settled. And then the Screen Actors Guild had a year-long stalemate where they worked without a contract. Uh, and that was over the same issues, really, as the, as the writer's strike was, was, which was new media and the internet and what sort of jurisdiction and coverage and residuals and so forth, you know, royalties would uh, the union get in new media, so-called new media. And that eventually, so that would generate a lot of news as well. And a lot of, uh, you know, coverage for me, of, of me as well, you know, as well as as part of that. And, um, you know, I start getting letters. I mean, I got a letter during the writer's strike, an email rather, from a guy who says, um, you know, I'm the production sound mixer on such and such a show, or at least I was until we went dark three weeks ago. Uh, Now I've lost my job and he's sort of implying, you know, he doesn't know what he says. I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, he's sort of implying he might lose his house. Um, He goes, but at least thanks to you, I know what's going on, which, you know, it was very gut-wrenching to get an email like that. And what also happened was that uh, the LA Times reporter who had been quoting me eventually stopped quoting me. And I said to him, you know, Richard, why don't you quote me anymore? And he goes, because you're a competitor. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm a lawyer who's blogging. And he's like, "No, you're breaking news. People are reading your stuff. I'm not going to quote a competitor."
1: <laughs> I know.
0: And I was like, "Okay." Uh, and then I I sat down for coffee with the New York Times guy, and he wags a finger at me and he goes, "You know, you and I are going to be working in the same place one day." And I'm like, "Mike, what are you talking about? I mean, I grew up reading the New York Times. This is, you know, I'm not a journalist. I I didn't even do student journalism. I never. I took a couple of uh, you know seminar classes as it happens one as an undergrad and one." as a law student, but I mean, I'd never done any journalism in my life. And he's just like, you know, and basically, you know, they were right. What I hadn't realized was that I'd with this HuffPo thing, uh, I basically created a public facing journalism internship for myself and was, you know, executing in front of tens of thousands of people. And a year after all this settles down, I get a call out of the blue from the Hollywood Reporter uh, and it's Matt Bellany, who was the number three editor at the time, later became the number one editor and, uh, and became my, and was my editor and is now my editor at Puck. And Matt goes, um, we hear that the Teamsters might strike now. And you know, the people that haul the equipment, which was, would of course shut down the industry. Uh, do you know anything about that? And I was like, I'm looking at the phone. Cause this is a weird there's something off about this call because first of all, why is an editor calling me not a reporter?
1: Yeah.
0: Right. And secondly, do you know anything about that? Like what the hell kind of interview question is that? So I was like, no. And he goes, would you like to look into it and write about it for us? And now I'm really staring at the phone because it's 2010 reporters are getting laid off across the country because of the internet and the recession. And I'm like, is this guy offering me a job? So I was like, well, does it pay? Uh, you know, because the Huff Post doesn't, but I'm not going to do freebies to the Hollywood Reporter. And he laughs and he goes, yeah, not as well as being a lawyer, but yeah. And I was like, okay. And that's how I became a journalist. I mean, it's just completely the accidental journalist. And I, my first story on this potential strike that didn't end up happening um, was at the, the top of the front page. I pushed Leo DiCaprio to the bottom. Uh, you know, I was like, I mean, and I'm smart enough to know that wasn't going to happen every day. But it, actually, of my six stories on that subject, five of them were front page, and I end up getting into a closed door Teamster meeting. Also, accidentally, actually, I was looking for the bathroom, and they just threw me in the meeting, um, where they were deciding whether to call a strike. And it was, it was kind of agonizing because I realized the bathroom was out was out another door, and I wouldn't be able to get back in if I did go to the bathroom. So I'm, I'm standing there standing room only, standing there, really need to go to the bathroom. It's a two hour or so meeting. I'm hoping no one looks at me and goes, what show did I work with you on? Uh, you know, cause it's a tight knit community. And, and of course I couldn't take notes. That would be too obvious. And as soon as the meeting ended, I had to run to the bathroom, then do a stand-up for channel seven and then run home and write my piece of the Hollywood reporter. And it was just, you know, complete adrenaline rush. So, over the course of ten years at the Hollywood Reporter, I was the um, the lead reporter on union and guild matters, and probably two thirds of my stories were were on union and guild or other workplace kinds of issues, and the remainder were, were on other entertainment law, entertainment business, uh, general assignment, that kind of thing. And um, I wrote about fourteen hundred stories, which is averages to about three a week, which is a lot considering that I was you know part time. I was this was concurrent with my law practice. And it turned out to be very synergistic. Um, you know, there were lawyers, for example, who would say, tell me, I never talked to the media, but I talk to you because A, you're a lawyer and B, you're able to write in a way that explains complex subjects for people that are that aren't familiar with it. And yet you don't dumb it down and you don't make it impossible for people who are familiar, you know, to, to read the piece and just, you know, feel like there is, you know, nails scratching on a blackboard or something. Um, and that, you know, those were very nice compliments to get. And I, I also was told that my repeatedly, my writing has a lot of flow to it. You, you start and you just glide right through and then the piece ends and you're like, wow, there's, you know, never an interruption. And, um, it got to the point where some lawyers were sending me their legal briefs before they even filed them. And, um, you know, and even asking me for comment on their legal briefs, you know, it's just a very interesting kind of set of roles. Um, I I will say about writing, I mean, I was a, as I said, I was a math and science kid. I, uh, you know, I did as, as a kid, I did well in English, but, you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't the subject that I excelled in the way I did with Anything related to math, uh, but you know, you you write fourteen hundred stories, your writing gets better, and you learn stuff. And um, I had also done uh, one of my summer jobs during high school. Uh, I had a very interesting set of set of, set of jobs early on. My my uh, to to just divert for a minute. My first summer job in high school was for a computer store in suburban New York at a time when there are only a dozen computer stores in the entire world. Um, Later during college, one of my summer jobs was for a company that subsequently became the first dot-com ever registered. And my first job out of college was actually for the company that invented email and invented the internet, the ARPANET at the time under contract to the Defense Department. But, um, you know, so very kind of present in the creation almost in some ways. But uh, I also had worked one year for IBM uh, in high school, which was, you know, the computer company at the time and did computational linguistics. I wrote a program where you could type in an English sentence and it would spit out a sentence diagram, would analyze the, you know, what's the subject, what's the, what are the adjectives, the, the verb, the object, all that kind of thing. And that analytical approach to writing, uh, you know, to language, you know, has stood me in good stead as a, both as a journalist and as a lawyer drafting or analyzing contracts. And for that matter, as a lawyer writing, you know, emails and letters and things of that sort. Um, and, and ultimately poetry as it turned out. Uh, so the other thing was that was really helpful was that after I wrote that program, they, IBM wanted me to write a technical report describing the work I'd done. So I write this thing and I, uh i get my draft back from the guy i was working for and his first comment like two paragraphs in was brutal but really educational he goes reader falls asleep here and i had gone to a great high school i mean just a high school that's competitive with the top private schools in the in the northeast i was very lucky in terms of what my parents were you know where they moved and what they were able to provide for us um but that was the first time i really realized you know, truly realized that writing is an interaction between the writer and the reader. And what I would say uh, to people, you know interested in writing or curious about writing and and journalism and writing of all sorts is that the the one thing I say is that every word, every punctuation mark, every sentence, every paragraph and subheading, is an opportunity to lose the reader because in most cases the reader would rather be doing anything other than reading your writing. They'd rather be playing on Facebook or Instagram uh, or TikTok. They'd rather be playing video games or sports, especially listeners to this podcast, I would guess uh, or watching TV, watching movies, going to the beach. They'd rather be doing anything other than reading your writing. And so the bar uh, that, you have to aspire to, if you want your writing, you know, to truly make an impression is actually quite high. And it's uh, you know, for most people, uh, for many, for most people, it's very difficult. And I, I'm sympathetic to that. I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, it, it turns out I'm wired for writing uh, and, and I'm wired for rhyme as you, uh, you know, as you heard with that poem, yeah, right. you know, So I, so I spent 10 years with, with THR and then um, SAG-AFTRA called me one day and offered to become a client and uh, maybe an offer I couldn't refuse as it were. And um, I couldn't be writing about unions for, you know, for the Hollywood Reporter at the same time that I was representing one. And so that led me to make a shift. Uh, And as I said, for, you know, for two years, I was, uh, uh very privileged to uh, be an outside counsel uh, for sag aftra. And um, you know, that relationship came to an organic uh, you know, uh, ending and the puck opportunity opened up as uh, you know, to get my toe back into journalism. And um and and there you are. Um the the journalism also opened up creative writing pathways that I didn't realize I had, you know, and meanwhile, my law practice, um, is a transactional practice, very broad practice. So I've got writers, book authors, um, you know, directors, uh, production companies, um, just basically a whole range of, uh, of, uh, of clients, uh, both independently and some through, uh, through Troy Gould uh, represented an agent at one of the major agencies uh, uh, negotiating or renegotiating uh, the agent's contract with the, uh, with the agent, with the agency rather uh, helped another client uh, set up a small sports agency. Uh, since we are a sports podcast, I throw that in, I love uh, it. you know, <laughs> and um, I do teach as an adjunct once a year, uh, teach a unions and guilds course. Uh, primarily at Southwestern these days, sometimes at USC. Um, I've written a number of nonfiction books on entertainment labor. And um, uh, and I'm an executive at WIO, which stands for Wins It On, uh, WIO, Uh And you can find it at WIO Pro, W-I-O-P-R-O.com. Uh, it's a, a software tool that lets people find if you're someone who's it's it's targeted at actors, writers, directors and film and TV composers uh as well as at institutions like like guilds that work with them uh, and and also at profit participants and it um allows people to see where any given movie or TV episode, has run on linear television in 55 territories across the, uh, across the world. So it's meant for helping people reconcile whether their participation statements or residual or composite royalty statements are, uh, are accurate and captured all of, uh, you know, all of the usages of their, of their product, which unfortunately is generally not, uh, not the case, hence the need for the company. Um, so that's kind of what I've been, That doing, and that's, you know, it's a very um, random walk through different, uh, you know, through different uh, uh, careers and subjects and things. But it's, uh, for me at least, you know, having a variety of things to work on uh, and to do is, you know, what's most satisfying. And being able to help people, um, you know, both through the journalism and through the lawyering is you know, is, and, and the teaching, uh, is, uh, and, and the corporate, the WIO stuff for that matter, uh, really, I guess is a through line, uh, as well for me.
1: I love that. And, you know, Jonathan, the one thing I appreciate you sharing that. And the one thing that there's a theme in your career, which I really love and appreciate is, you know, you can always tell a really good attorney or a really good journalist by who hires them for their next job, you know? And so, what I've seen, which is really cool, is, you know, you're writing for Hollywood Reporter, and then, um, you know, you sort of have, uh, you know, basically, you end up working for SAG AFTRA, you know, which I'm sure they got to know you through your writing, and they thought, hey, you know, this guy's a great lawyer, you know, he's he he writes great pieces, he's very thoughtful, and this sort of thing, and uh, that's just I'd really profound and really kind of stuck with me. And then even when you began your writing. And then you, you know, obviously know, um, you can begin to know who you are by your competition, right? And so if you have writers basically saying, hey, you know, uh, Jonathan, like you're competing with us now, but I'm sure in your mind, you're a humble guy. You're probably like not even thinking in that context. You're just like, hey, I like these topics. I'm writing. I'm not even thinking about being a journalist, but they clearly saw you as competition, which is a, um, a great feather in your cap, you know, because you- You've clearly been doing uh doing some great work. So I appreciate you sharing that. I um in terms of like your legal skills, um, you know, went to law school, still practicing, you know, still run a very successful practice. Um, where have you sort of found that journalism has helped you in your legal practice? And also vice versa. How have your legal skills helped you in the um the journalism side? I mean, I know like for me, you talked about the writing piece. And that's something I always try to like impart on folks, especially if they're in college or what have you is the, you know, I'll explain to them that law school has this way of breaking you down uh, almost to the point where you don't like writing anymore because law school sort of teaches you a new language and it also teaches you how to write, you know, succinctly efficiently, but then maybe that takes away from some of the creative aspect. But to your point, you know, you've written over 1400 articles, you get to an, a, you know, a point in life where you get really good at it and you continue to get better as you practice. Um, but maybe talk about that sort of dichotomy, you know, where lawyer journalist, and how those things benefit each other.
0: Sure. Um, they, for me, at least they were extremely synergistic. Um, the, um, the journalism has brought me into contact with a larger, array of people uh you know an additional array of people that i was not in contact with in the law practice and you know made me made me known to uh you know to people i mean i'm you know i i i don't represent i i have in the past represented uh of you know i was at a firm where we represented some a-listers and uh i have one or two uh, a list clients but that's not the the meat of my practice and so I'm you know I didn't in my practice I didn't regularly engage with um you know with some of the people at the very uh you know highest levels of entertainment uh corporate and agency uh world and the the, the journalism changed that and made me a known quantity to people i mean even as early as when i was doing the blogging at one point um I was at some conference and we all had name tags and the head of ICM bumps into me at the time, uh, Jeff Berg, and sees my name tag and he goes, Oh, I read your blog all the time. And I, I was like, <laughs> you know, I was kind of flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say really, I just, except to thank him. Um, Cause you know, you writing is a solitary kind of thing. You sit alone surrounded by a few screens and you write stuff and send it off into the ether. And um You know, frequently don't have a really solid idea of, uh, you know, of who's reading your stuff. You know what what influence, if any, are you having on people? Um, And so, you know, so there was that. Um, And writing has been key to my uh, to my law practice. In another aspect. Writing has been key to my law practice. I mean, I believe that in most cases, a good contract should tell a story. It should be clear and logically organized and, uh, and tell a story because, you know, the contract serves to remind the parties what they've agreed on. It also serves to remind the successors when that executive leaves or, you know, personnel change, you want to be able to pick up the contract if necessary, and understand what's going on. And if things go south and there's litigation or arbitration, you want the contract to tell a clear story, not just to the uh, arbitrator or judge, but preferatory to that. You want the contract to tell a clear story to the litigation lawyers who get involved so that hopefully uh, you know, things can be resolved before actually going to a trial or going to an arbitration hearing. Uh, but those are lawyers, you know, those, again, are people who are not involved in the original deal or, and who are not necessarily specialists uh, in the deal. Lit- litigators are often, you know, somewhat more generalist than uh, than contract lawyers, transactional lawyers are. So that's important. Being able to write clear and concise uh, emails, whether you're commenting on a contract or whether you're making a demand or informing a client of something or whatever it is, uh, you know, I mean, these are sort of skills that just aren't handled as well as they should be by, by many people. And, uh, to be a professional writer as well as a lawyer, you know, helps you set the bar for yourself and, uh, and develop those skills, you know, even, even further. And, and frankly, it was compute the original thing that turned me into a good writer was computers. Um, you know, back in the day when I was a kid uh, and even in college, um, we used typewriters and I'm the one thing I don't do well is I don't touch type. I'm very, my fingers very clumsy, unfortunately. And, um, so, you know, you make a mistake on a page, you've got to use whiteout and, you know, put an asterisk and drop a, an insert footnote. And, you know, you just can't, you know, it's very clumsy. Uh, Whereas for me, writing on a computer, I'm editing as I'm writing. I mean, people talk about, you know, I, I write my stuff and then I have to go back and edit and stuff. And I'm, that's often not the case for me uh, because it's, it's been edited in my head and edited on the computer as I've written it. And I, I'm lucky because of my linguistics, you know, background to be able to see the structure of sentences at the same time that I'm seeing the meaning and the emotional import and you know coordinating all those things and the and the flow as i talked about um so that's the one direction and then in terms of how did the law uh legal background help the uh journalism you know i'm just able to have much deeper conversations with lawyers and you know whether they're union negotiators whether they're litigators whether they're you know, studio side people. Um, I'm able to have you know much deeper conversations because of my legal background and the uh, you know credibility that that my analytical ability, I guess you know, brings to that. I mean, you know, to the point where, I mean, I had a conversation once with uh, some years ago with the head of the AMPTP, the studio alliance that negotiates against the unions for their, you know, for the union contracts. And the publicist was on the phone at the time that, you know, they, they often want to be on the phone. And um, afterwards, uh, he just marveled. And he was like, I've never heard a reporter have a conversation like that with, you know, with my, with the, with the person that I was talking with, you know, because there's just so, I mean, I'm, I'm able to be Deeply in the weeds and precise about stuff, and at the same time, not not lose track of the, of the larger uh, picture and of the human picture and 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 bring that to bear. Uh, so it's just been a. There's a lot of transferable skills and overlapping skills. And I guess what I would say to people, also, you know, especially again, you know, younger people. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in jobs that they sort of put up with, but wish they were doing something else. And what people don't pay enough attention to is the transferability of, of, of skills. Um, You know, I mentioned that I was asked to write a law back when I was, you know, like 23. Um, The reason I was able to do that, even though I never read a law was that I, I had local civil rights commissions around the country send me their civil rights laws, and uh, and I got some laws on other subjects from from Cambridge to see the local style. And this city council had asked me, as I said, to, to write a civil rights law for Cambridge because I I was the one who had uh, spearheaded the drive for it, uh, you know, to include gay rights, but uh, broad, you know, uh, broader than that. And when I looked at these laws. And read all this stuff, I realized this is a lot like programming a computer, which was a skill that I obviously had. Um, You know, legal documents, legal, I mean, laws and also contracts are a restricted subset of English. You have to define your terms. Uh, A lot of it's very procedural, you know, this, 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 one after the other. Uh, A lot of it's got a lot of conditionals to it, a lot of if then else. Uh, which, of course, software does also. And you have to be very precise about your grammar and even your punctuation, again, like software. And I literally looked at all this stuff that I'd never you know, seen before in my life and was like, you know, if this is all this is, this is easy, I can do this. And I think people don't always give themselves enough credit for that. And And the other thing is with the internet today, you can, you know, if you can make time, you can avocationally be what you want to become. I mean, that's what happened to me with the journalism without even realizing I wanted to become that. Uh, but, you know, suppose you're a graphic designer doing, you know, not particularly interesting work, let's say, and a not particularly interesting to you, at least part of the country. But what you'd really love to do is design automobiles in Southern California for one of the design shops for one of the major auto manufacturers, you know, domestic or foreign, they, a lot of them have their, you know, have design facilities in Orange County. It's a you know a hub for that. Well, you've got transferable skills. You're a graphic designer. So, and the other thing is, uh, there are paper, there are websites, and there are paperback books on almost everything these days, whether it's entertainment law or designing cars. So, start educating yourself. Start designing some cars. Then reach out on LinkedIn. When you have some stuff that looks kind of cool, reach out on LinkedIn to people who work where you want to work. Don't ask them for a job. Say, tell them, I've done this, this stuff. It seems kind of cool to me, but could you take a look at it and give me some you know, critique? And now you start developing relationships. And you start planning yourself in people's minds as someone who's you know, potentially part of the club. And the next thing, you know, it might be like, well, hey, I'd, I'd love to come out in LA and visit your, you know, your studio, meet you in person, meet some of your colleagues, and then suddenly you're no longer in Cincinnati or whatever. You you get a job offer in you know in Los Angeles, in Orange County.
1: No, and I appreciate you sharing that, Jonathan. I mean, it's so fascinating how, um, you know, how you're able to leverage, but also just learn from each side of that because you're right because it's like you know as a lawyer you can be more technical and and have those technical conversations and you know you know the language and there's that level of trust but then as a journalist you know you have that ability to ask the tough questions and and to get beyond um you know what what many might sort of claim is lawyers taking the easy way out of it depends right or or um or maybe not getting to the heart of something because they're, they're worried about a certain result. Whereas as a journalist, you're just worried about getting to the truth and worried about sharing something. So I appreciate that. Um, I've got a few more questions for you and then um, we'll let you go. I know you're a busy guy. The first is sort of how has uh, the internet and social media changed your uh, position or duties uh, in your different roles?
0: Well, you know, dramatically. I mean, as a as a journalist, you know, when I was a uh, you know, a day-to-day journalist, the Hollywood reporter, you know, people say, What's your deadline? And the usual answer was, you know, five minutes ago when my competitor posted. I mean, very competitive time-wise and a lot of pressure to both to be both first and best at the same time. And that's a um, it's an adrenaline rush, but also uh, you know, stressful and you know, uh, and disruptive at times. Uh, and there are some days when I was completely a journalist, some days when I was completely a lawyer, uh, other days when I'm tearing my hair out, you know, trying to juggle uh, different deadlines for both of those uh, professions. Social media, I use social media primarily uh, as a, well, LinkedIn, I, I'll use to find pe- to find sources sometimes. But I use social media primarily as a as a one way uh, tool to, uh, you know, if I wrote if I write an article, I'll do uh, social media posts on my sub stack, which is jhandle.news, J-H-A-N-D-E-L.news, which is a sub stack with news and poetry and, you know, ruminations and of, of all sorts and fairly infrequent sub stack. But uh, I welcome people to uh, sign up. Uh, you know and on my LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, and Facebook um, I try not to respond to comments on social media because the vast majority of them are you know uh, ill-informed uh, and uh and sort of, you know, excessively provocative. I mean, it's, um, I, I just say to people, I don't pay Twitter no mind. I mean, you know, people, uh, is, is Screen Actors Guild politics is very um, partisan and divisive uh, in particular. And so, you know, if a faction feels that I've done them wrong, it's, you know, well, here's all this evidence that, you know, uh, handle is you know, he's corrupt or he's this or he's that. And, you know, I, the way I deal with it, I, I had an actress, famous actress come up to me at a, uh, at a rally they were holding outside SAG headquarters, SAG after headquarters and wag her finger at me and say, you're a bad reporter. Uh, she was unhappy that I had uh, found a, finally found a copy of a confidential report and revealed that it didn't, uh, in fact, say what, her faction had long claimed that it said. And I just folded my arms and looked at her and said, uh, I'll call her Jane for the sake of this. I, I said, uh, you know, Jane, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that. Uh, which of course was not the answer she was hoping for. And she, you know, stomped her feet and, and stalked off. But, you know, there's no there's no profit in uh, in getting involved in uh, you know, Twitter storms and things of that sort, uh, you know, by and large. So, um, you know, that's uh, in, in terms of, you know, the law, um, you know, the internet is, I mean, whenever someone asks me a question that I don't know the answer to, I my response is, you know, Google knows all and tells all. Uh, I mean, almost anything that you want to know, you can get some some cut at an answer on the open internet by, you know, by Googling. Uh, It's just, you know, it's an astonishing resource. I mean, my mom worked for the American Bar Association when, uh, before I was born, you know, like she worked in the fifties. And when she described what she did, she would get letters from lawyers. Like, you know, I want to start a law practice in Kentucky. Can you give me some advice? Or, you know, what's the best book on real estate law in Nebraska? And she'd write back, you know, and you know, a week later and then a week after that, there'd be another response back and forth. And I said, Mom, you, you were Google. And she kind of laughed. But yeah, you know, those are all things now. If you want to start a law practice in in Kentucky and need to know what to do, you Google. How do I start a law practice in Kentucky? Uh, you know, so we live in a world, I mean, people make fun of librarians, uh, you know, little lady kind of stereotype. Google is a big librarian, you know, it's a, it's a master librarian and the informational resources that are available to, uh, to lawyers, uh, you know, have just dramatically, you know, dramatically changed the law practice.
1: Yeah. No, it's, um, it's so interesting because, you know, to your point, I remember I was writing for Dodgers nation for, I don't know, two, three years. Wrote about 90 articles for them.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I remember my mother saw an article that I wrote. And she, you know, she wasn't um, you know, the biggest mm-hmm. baseball fan, but you know, she she loved baseball and in the sense that um her son loved it, you know, so she would she would watch it if I was watching it or whatever. Right. Or if the Dodgers were in the playoffs or you know, which seems to happen a lot lately, thankfully. But um, <laughs> yeah. um so And I remember she read an article one time and I didn't ask her to read it. I think she just came across it. She probably saw that it was on social media or something. And she saw one of the comments at the bottom of the article by, you know, random person. I didn't know who the person was. And she called me and she said, oh my God, did you read what this person wrote about you? And, and I said, no, I haven't. And I said, I made a commitment to myself a long time ago to not pay attention to that stuff because the second that you, Put yourself out there in your writing and your podcasting. People are going to have comments, and as long as you're in touch with, you know, your sort of stream of advisors that you trust, and your friends, and your colleagues, and people that are willing to challenge you, um, and you have your ear to the ground in terms of what the people are saying, but not in the sense of very specifics as as to people you know uh, saying sort of like terrible things. So I said I ignore it, you know, because. If you engage with people on platforms, um, it, first of all, it's not the greatest place to engage in a conversation. And then generally people who are wanting to conversate on s- social media are just looking to make a point. They're not looking to right. learn or, or engage. And, and I think you said that really eloquently. And and so I admire that because you really, you can't do what you do and and continue to engage Uh, with content that way. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. You're going to, you know, for whatever reason, it's, you know, that's not going to be a pleasant, a pleasant experience. So um, I appreciate you sharing that. And I just, so two last questions, Jonathan. So one is, second one is um, uh, what does the future of the business look like, both for, for lawyers and also for journalists? Uh, And, and maybe even, I know you're a technology expert as well, so maybe uh, talk a little bit about that aspect uh, with regard to those two uh, business areas.
0: Sure. And actually, before I answer that question, I, there's one other transferable skill point I wanted to make, which is my background as a kid, as a kid scientist for want of a better better word, and kid, you know, mathematician uh, have stood me in extremely good stead in journalism because science is very evidence-based uh, when properly done as most scientists uh, do. and so you know some stories I mean I, I reported on a story wrote wrote several dozen stories about accusations of sexual misconduct against uh, four prominent uh, gay guys in the entertainment business that uh, they turned out to be false. And um uh, the uh, the journalistic response to the accusations and the and the civil lawsuit that was brought, you know was really initially a rush to judgment. And I did not rush to make a judgment. I was uh my my approach to this was let's find let's see the evidence, let's see what the evidence uh, reveals. let's just bring it forward. Uh, and that's you know, that's the way you approach science. You don't assume that if you, if you mix two chemicals that, you know, that the result is going to, is going to turn blue and bubble. You mix the chemicals and see what the evidence is. You don't assume with a, you know, mathematical equation that, uh, you know, that you're going to get a particular result. You analyze the equation and solve for X or, you know, whatever it is and, um and, and see where the math leads you. And that same approach to uh you know to journalism has um you know still be in very good stead in in controversial you know kind of stories so you asked where the business is going in a in a where several businesses are going and um law is you know there's an increasing concentration uh of of law in big law firms, so-called big law, uh, the top 100 law firms in the country or in the world, uh, based on number of lawyers or based on revenue, that kind of thing. Um, that was never something that I that, that appealed to me. I mean, it's but uh, we. One of the results of technology has been a a push to scale things, and so, you know, when I was a kid, we would go to stationary stores to buy pads of paper and we'd go to hardware stores to buy hammers, you know, uh, that evolved to big box stores. You'd go to Staples and you'd go to Home Depot and, you know, and that's evolved, uh, now to, you know, those stores obviously still exist, but it's evolved to, you go to Staples or Home Depot or Amazon, you know, online, uh, and technology is what's enabled that, um, technology, you know, and technology of all sorts. I mean, one of the most important technologies, uh, you know, we, we all know that a lot of stuff is made in China is less expensive than making it here. Well, you know, you wonder what about the shipping costs? I mean, China is a long way away. And um, it used to be that if someone, you know, were to ship pads of paper, uh, that a pallet of those pads would be loaded onto a ship And then the ship would come to a port and then it'd be that pallet would be manually unloaded. And there were huge. And by the way, unionized workforces on the waterfronts Um, in the fifties, someone came up with the idea of containerization. And, you know, now of course the way factories work is, and and they became containerization, became popular starting in the mid sixties, you know, a factory loads its stuff onto a, into a container the container is trucked or sent by rail to a port It's it's shipped. And then the opposite happens. And, you know, it's all, uh, the, the loading and unloading is mechanized. The, the containers, maybe not, not then, but now of course are barcoded and GPSed for that matter. So, you know, suddenly because of information technology, uh, you know, it becomes, uh, economically practical to, to ship pads of paper from, uh, you know, from overseas and and cheaper to make them there than to make them here. Um so that, you know, is slowly having an effect on service businesses like uh like law and it's harder and harder for law firms of of certain sizes to survive. They they either have to get big or or downsize. Um the In terms of journalism, journalism has been uh, very hard hit, very eviscerated by the Internet. Um, The first threat uh, was Craigslist, which took away the classified ad business from the uh, from the newspapers. And that was a a significant source of revenue. Um, But the unbundling of news, you know, to read a a single story uh, that you find on Google rather than subscribing to a newspaper, uh, you know, has been very difficult and most newspapers and, and television news for that matter, cable news, except for Fox, uh, you know, have been struggling and we have an enormous problem. Um, in Australia, they just passed legislation that requires search engines to make payments to, uh, to the content, to the news content creators under certain circumstances so that some of the enormous money that's flown, to, that's flowed to tech, uh, goes back to people who are, uh, actually creating the content, um, whether that will happen here and in what form, you know, is hard to know, but, you know, tech has become, uh, you know, it's invaded every business and, is uh, you, you see enormous uh profits being accumulated by a small number of top tech companies and uh you know and their owners and founders and there's you know there are amazing developments but there also are uh amazingly difficult problems that go with that and the internet really challenges the underlying uh thesis of the uh, first amendment that the the cure for bad speech is is more good speech, because bad speech has an inherent advantage. Things that make people angry or that cater to their existing biases uh, tend to be tend to get faster and more rapid uptake and and retweets than things that say, "Hey, slow down, think about this. It's not necessarily what you what you what you think." And you know, I mentioned that uh, there's false accusations against the uh, four gay entertainment people i um uh, ultimately there was a story that i wrote that about the exoneration about of uh of of at least two of them who had counter sued after the first suit the accusations collapsed i had our it people pull the hit counts for me and the hit count for the first story with the accusations um versus the story with the exoneration you know a year and a half later uh the ratio was 11 to 1 and that's just on The Hollywood Reporter and leaving out the fact that the accusations went internet-wide and worldwide. Uh, so it's a it's a very difficult place we're in. And that's, you know, the f- technology is going to continue to advance uh, relentlessly. And it already is beyond the place where we know how to, uh, you know, human ethics and morals and judgment do not advance with the same speed that that technology advances. And we see the problem with nuclear weapons. We see the problem with the internet and all sorts of other things. And uh, finally, uh, you didn't ask about the future of the entertainment industry, but I think uh, that bears mentioning as well. Um, Linear television, uh, broadcast television and and cable TV are cratering. Uh, The declines in viewership are 10 or 15% every year, year over year for the past, you know, five, seven years. Um, cinema going is never going to return to where it was pre-COVID. Uh, it will presumably get better than it is now. And it certainly is better now than it was a year ago. But uh, Netflix dragged the industry into a new world that now that Netflix's own stock is down 60% uh, we see that that's a that it's a world where there's serious question as to what's sustainable. Uh, you know Netflix is hey you have a an in, you know essentially infinite library available to you for 15 bucks a month. That's uh, a lot lower price point than spending you know, than what you spend on two movie tickets and parking and concessions refreshments for a single night. I mean, in LA, 20 bucks a ticket plus, you know, it's, it's going to be 50, 60, 70 bucks that you spend to go out for one night of the movies, you know, for a pair, for, for two people, for a couple or whatever, uh, versus you get a whole month of Netflix for less than the price of a single ticket. Uh, but is that sustainable? I mean, you know that those those price points are great for consumers just like spotify is great for consumers but when there's less money going into the system cuz prices have been driven down uh that means there's less money uh for the creators of content and it puts enormous stress on uh whether writers actors directors and others can continue to afford to be in this business uh You know, and uh, it puts stress on even on the companies. I mean, the the companies when they negotiate with the unions are always crying poverty, and then they, as they fly back to New York somewhere over the Mississippi, they change briefcases and they tell Wall Street that they're doing great, but not so much this time. I mean, not when the, you know, stocks stock is down sixty percent, and we used to have six major studios, now we notionally have five but really we only have two or three, I mean, you know, plus Netflix. So, I mean, you've got Netflix, you've got Disney. uh, And then you've got uh, Warner discovery, which I always thought should be called Warner disco uh, and uh, universal studios. And the two of them will probably merge within the next several years. Um, And, and then after that, because they're not large enough to compete effectively with Disney or even Netflix. Um, and then after that, what do you have? You got Paramount, which is too small. you got Sony, which is small Sony pictures, but you know, the Sony electronics company, the parent company seems to be willing to operate it as sort of a, you know, we're making money at it and we're not trying to be a direct consumer and have a streaming channel. And it's just sort of almost a hobby for them in a certain sense. And, um, uh, you know, and then there's Lionsgate, which is even smaller. And, you know, so these companies, the, when you get the tech companies involved as they, as they are now, um, scale becomes important uh, just as I was talking about earlier. And uh, you suddenly have pressure that, you know, you had six major studios for, for many decades. And then suddenly that edifice starts to crack.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. no and i i love that you shared that because the entertainment piece is so important i'm so glad you brought that up it's something that i write about quite a bit in terms of streaming and the future of it and theater going and that and one part is sad you know because theater going is so important it's such a a big part of american history and and really you know entertainment culture right hopefully that can be you know somewhat reserved if you will But the other side of it is that obviously streaming is such a great piece in terms of you know being able to access content. And then you know your comments on you know the future of the profession. It's some of the you know same issues that we're dealing with on our side.
0: There's there's two things to think about. You know, at a larger conceptual level, one is uh, that the internet, the ethos of the internet, and the ethos of the entertainment industry traditionally were diametrically opposed okay the internet uh ethos the basic ethos has been anything and everything anywhere anytime for free or as close to it as possible the in, the ethos of entertainment historically has been creating using copyright law and also the difficulty pre-internet of Uh, of piracy. I mean, you know, without the internet, how do you pirate a movie? Well, you make a camcorder copy. And then how do you distribute it? Well, you sell it in Times Square, you know, manually hand to hand or in downtown LA. Um, So pre-internet, both the practical difficulties of analog uh, copying and, and, you know, and analog style distribution and the, legal buttress of copyright law that says you know we own the copyright in this movie or whatever um you know and same thing with music right i mean yeah you'd make a mixtape and give it to your you know to your college friend down the hall but you know and that would take away some of the business of uh the record you know the, re- the music companies the record companies at the time but it wasn't you know you're talking 10 percent or something like that you weren't talking 30 40 50 percent or more um but the industry and the industry also the 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 filmed entertainment industry, film and TV, relied on a concept of windowing, which is we'll make this movie available in the theaters at, uh, at a certain time and a certain price point, and then it will leave the theaters and it will be available on pay per view uh, at a certain price point, and then it will be available on DVD or VH. You know, let's talk about the DVD era, and then it will be available on HBO, and then later. Available on you know broadcast television, and by sequencing the availability at different price points through different media, uh, the studios attempted to maximize revenue. But that's no longer that's increasingly difficult and no longer possible, really, because of both the ease of piracy, the or the easier ease of piracy in the digital world, and the overwhelming consumer demand uh, that entertainment be delivered with an internet ethos. And that's what Netflix, uh, you know, first capitalized on and then grew big enough that it was able to, uh, you know, sort of swallow the industry in a sense and push the industry to that. The, the other thing about the internet and this relates to the social media discussion we were having earlier and, and why, why, the, you know and and a lot of sorts of things that go on on the internet that are like you can't believe someone said that and you know why are people you know like this um is that the internet erases a whole host of distinctions that were that used to be intuitive to us it erases distinctions between local and global it erases distinc- distinctions between private and public it erases distinctions between Verbal, oral, and uh, written. It erases distinctions between different kinds of of media. And it erases distinctions between transient and permanent. So, in an earlier era, you know, I might have been, you and I might have been walking on the street, and one of us, in an, you know, ill guarded moment, you know, might have made a a crude remark about somebody. (laughs) Right. Look at that. Ho, look at that, you know, whatever. I don't want to I don't want to start speculating, but, you know, uh, you know, or even uh, someone I mean, I neither of us would, I think. But, you know, someone might have made a an offhandedly racist comment Uh, and. It wouldn't be right, but it also wouldn't go anywhere because it was private, it was verbal and it was transient. As soon as it was said, it was it was gone. Um, but now the internet makes you think that you're in private. I'm, I'm, I'm here in private in my, in my home office. Um, I'm not in public. I'm not flying around the world. I'm not in, you know, in New York or London. Um, and what I do just, you know, my keyboard just kind of flies off my keys. But if I make a, you know, a post that's insensitive or, or worse, um, that post is both private and public. It's both transient and permanent. It's both local and global. It's both verbal in a sense, in the sense that it was dashed off casually, the way people treat texting and, and social media, you know, as casually as they would, might treat a, a verbal comment, and yet it's also written uh, and has the severity, and permanence, and impact. a written comment does and so um those the 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 dissolving of those distinctions uh and the dissolving of distinctions between media i mean you know the new york times can't afford not to have video because the video people you know the cnbc does cnbc can't afford not to have text online because the new york times does um You know, the word content uh, in the way that we use it today didn't exist 12 years, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, But now it's it's all just content. I mean, you know, as Shakespeare, you know, no doubt said, all the world's an app. And, you know, we're just pixels on a dusty screen. But, you know, the other thing is that, you know, as I said, you know, human judgment has not evolved as quickly. And and that includes media literacy. And so. There are just an enormous number of people who believe, you know, if it's a pixel on my screen and it glows, it must be true. And we're in a very, uh, you know, treacherous space as far as that goes. And, you know, and as far as the, uh, you know, national politics and all of that are concerned, national and international.
1: Right. Now, really good points, Jonathan. I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation and, um, I mean, I'm just, I've really enjoyed it. And I, and I think, I think one way to close us, uh, is one last question, which, which you've already done this entire episode, but would be maybe some words of wisdom, um, you might have for people trying to break into the industry, maybe whether that be tech or whether that be entertainment or, you know, as a lawyer, as a journalist, however you want to take that or, or, you know, roll with that. But I think we can close with that one.
0: Sure, um, and my advice would be: develop as many skills as you can, as effectively as you can. Uh, writing and oral communication and presentation of your of yourself, uh, you know, to a camera, to a webcam, and all that. Those are all. Uh, extremely important skills. That's number one. Um, Number two, learn as much as you can from reliable sources on the internet uh, and you have to use judgment um, and paperback books about what it is that you want to do. Um, Third, think very clearly about what skills you have that may be transferable. And fourth, uh, try to find some time to just start doing what you want to do and, and, and becoming who you want to be, um, whether it's through, you know, a, an extracurricular at, you know, in, in high school or college, whether it's through a, um, you know, an adult education course, whether it's through a community organization, whether it's through volunteering, whether it's through, you know, the example I gave with a graphic, des- you know, graphic designer. Whether it's through just, you know, doing it and creating it and 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 being it. The um, there's a lot of competition for, uh, you know, for good jobs, and you know, in in a lot of areas. But there's also a lot of ability, avocationally. There uh, are to simply be what you want to be, you know, you want to be an, an analyst of, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for a consulting company, analyzing, uh, analyzing tech or media or, you know, or sports or, or whatever, Well, just start doing it, you know, set up a sub stack. So you've got a web presence and you can start collecting uh, email addresses. And uh you know, and use your social channels and just start you know just start writing uh, and and analyzing what's going on just just be open to the uh,
1: to the world. I really appreciate you taking the time and um, and your expertise and your knowledge and all this and uh obviously look forward to keeping in touch and and keep the conversation going. But again, just really appreciate you and and uh, looking forward to to hearing about what what, what you do next, my friend.
0: Well, thank you. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity and I hope, uh, uh, that people found this interesting and helpful. And, um, uh, if so they are, uh, people are always welcome to reach out. My, uh, my sub stack, as I mentioned is J handle J H a N D E L E before L dot news. My website is jhandle.com and it has my various, uh,
1: contact info on it. Awesome. No, well, thanks for that. And, um, We'll look forward to being with you soon, my friend. And again, appreciate your time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, buddy. All right. So everybody, that was Jonathan Handel. He is uh, an amazing reporter and friend and uh, and lawyer here in California. Uh, And uh, just happy to have him on the show. And uh, look forward to being back with you uh, next week. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.